Well, greetings, church. It is good to be together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to find Psalm 1 today. Psalm 1. And as you're finding our passage, let me welcome you, uh, if you're listening online or if you happen to be tuning in from our other locations like Moco, Loudon, and my family at Prince William. It's good to be together in the house of the Lord. Now, as a young man, I will tell you that Psalms and Proverbs raised me spiritually. The wisdom found in these two books was foundational for my walk with God. By reading one proverb and five Psalms a day, every month I was able to go through both books. By doing this, I was able to saturate my life with much needed wisdom. And as a teenager, I can tell you, I needed plenty of it. I also was allowed to observe consequences from choices made and principles from guidance of God's Word. Now, for those of you that are new to the book of Psalms, they are a collection of Hebrew songs. You might want to say they're the greatest hits of the Bible and they make a phenomenal playlist. As you journey through the Psalms, you will be taken on a roller coaster of emotion. In 150 chapters, you're going to see happiness and joy. You will also see loneliness and despair. You'll observe might, God's might and man's frailty. And in the Psalms, there are celebrations and calamity. And throughout all these circumstances, the Psalms remind us to worship the Lord. You might say there's a Psalm for everything. This, in fact, is the name of our new sermon series, A Psalm for Everything. And where better to start this series than Psalm chapter 1? I like how Charles Spurgeon describes Psalm 1 as a preface psalm. Spurgeon goes on to say, It is the psalmist's desire to teach us the way of blessedness and to warn us of the sure destruction of sinners. This, then, is the matter of the first psalm, which may be looked upon in some respects as the text upon which the whole of the psalms makes up a divine sermon. Another interesting fact about the psalms that is often missed is that they are divided into five books, just like the law or Torah, which make up the first five books of the Bible. The division of the psalms are as follows, Psalms 1 through chapter 41, then book 2 is 42 through 72, then you have 73 through 89, 90 through 106, and then finally 107 through 150. That makes up the five books in the psalms. To further add to the depth, you'll find that each book matches with the first five books of the Bible. We see life and grace in Genesis as well as book one of the Psalms. Redemption is the storyline in Exodus and Psalms 42 through 72. Sanctification and communion with God are the portrait of Leviticus as in Psalms 73 through 89. Numbers is dark and full of testing. Chapters 90 through 106 display bitter challenging experiences of the people of God as they live in the world. And then thankfully, Deuteronomy shows us God overruling in all trials and difficulties, as does Psalms 107 through 150, with pictures of people praising God for His goodness and His faithfulness. And almost like the author had a point throughout each book, and dare I say, the entire Bible. Our text today begins with blessed and ends with perish. The first word in this psalm began with the word or the letter Aleph, which is the letter A in the Hebrew alphabet. The last word in this psalm begins with Tav, which is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The entire psalm shows the reader the A through Z of living a godly life. 
It goes on to show us the choices between two fundamentally different ways of living. One way is wise, the other way is foolish. One way leads to life, the other way leads to death. The psalmist might have had Deuteronomy chapter 30 in mind, and it led him to write. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Our message today is called, Two Ways to Live. Our passage is Psalm 1. Let's take a look at the Word of God now. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father. May you lead each of us in the way of righteousness today. Help us to delight in your word and to long for it like the psalmist. Please turn our eyes and thoughts from foolish things and help us to focus on things that will matter for eternity, namely your word and the souls of mankind. Father, may you move on hearts that are far from you today. May you receive all the honor and glory. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. If you get to know me, there's a pretty good chance within a one-hour conversation you're going to hear something about Alaska. I can't help it. I lived there a couple times and pretty much raised our kids there, and I love Alaska, everything about it. And one of my jobs was to teach people in the mountains, and I also taught survival and over-the-beach operations and a lot of other fun things. But on this given day, I was leading a platoon of SEALs to climb up a mountain. The specific mountain was called Mount Menashka. Sounds very ominous. And it was one of those mountains that was pretty challenging to climb. And so what I had done before the platoon of SEALs got there, 16 men, I had placed a dead drop, which is an object filled with some contents in there, for them to retrieve. I wanted it to be a purpose to climb this mountain, not just tell them to go climb it. So as we are working our way to the mountain, we came to a point where we had to make a decision. It looked challenging. It looked difficult. And the officer in charge of the platoon says, I don't really want to send all my guys up there. I think we'll take an easier route to the beach and we'll meet you there. And I said, well, I've actually climbed this mountain and I've also gone down this valley and I'm actually going to tell you it's easier to go up and then to go down instead of just go that way. And he's like, I appreciate your input, but we're going to go down the valley. I'll send four guys with you. So training SEALs, if you haven't figured this out, is a lot like raising teenagers. They know everything. Now, I took the four guys up. It took us about three hours. We worked our way down, called in the boats for extract, and then we went out to a safe place in the sea, and we waited for the platoon to catch up with us. Did you know, after about six more hours, they called and said, we will need another 24 hours to meet you there. I said, noted. I said, we'll see you all tomorrow. And so I took those four guys back. They got hot chow. They got to sleep in their own rack. And, you know, spoils to the winner, right? 
When the men were picked up and they got back, I asked him, uh, how'd that go for you, sir? And he said, well, in retrospect, we would have been better off listening to you. I said, good point. That's really what the point of Psalm 1 is, too. Imagine the creator of the universe is writing you a letter. Imagine that he knows more than you. Imagine that he's trying to direct you to a way that's pleasing, that leads to life. But how many of us are pretty ornery and think we know better? How many of us are like, actually, I'm going to go this way that looks easier? And how many of us find out that that way leads to sorrow and death? Psalm 1 is powerful, and it has a lot for us to learn today. For my note-takers listening, I'm going to simply share three observations, and then we'll close our time together with three simple questions to help you apply God's Word. Here's our first observation. The way of the righteous, verses 1 through 3. Take a look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, the word blessed means to be supremely happy. I'd say most of us have a desire to be happy. And if we could be supremely happy, well, why not get in that line too? And if we just read this verse in English, we can miss an important tense in grammar. In Hebrew, the wording is rendered in such a way that the blessed man has never walked, stood, or sat with sinners. Now we're in church, so any guess who this man is? Okay, I heard one person say the answer. His name is Jesus Christ, right? He's the only one who's ever walked planet Earth with no sin. Now, you might be thinking, thanks a lot, Todd. I guess there's no point of listening any further. But there are great reasons to continue to stay with me today. Now, it's true that none of us start out as righteous, but as sinners. Don't think so? Just hang out with some toddlers. We hit the ground running, and we show that sin nature fast, don't we? Just talk to some young parents with little toddlers running around. How defiant a two-year-old could be is pretty amazing. This makes the grace of God all the sweeter. For you see, it is because of what Jesus has done, and everyone who places their faith and trust in Him can receive that righteousness. And we'll talk more about that later. It's clear that the way of unrighteousness goes from bad to worse. At least Charles Spurgeon thought so. Listen to what he has to say again. When men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly, who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil, and they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And if left alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. And thus they sit in the seat of the scornful, they have taken their degree and vice, and as true doctors of damnation, they are installed. Pretty sobering. Stands in the way of sinners also needs further explanation. In English, if you're like me, you would picture someone standing on a trail and not letting you pass by. But actually in Hebrew, what it means is to walk a mile in someone's shoes or to be like them, to be so much like them that no one else can tell the difference between the two. Then, once you sit with the scornful, you've arrived in the recliner, you've kicked up your feet, and you've joined them in mocking God's people. Now, to help give you more clarity on this deadly path, consider three pictures of the progression of these points. One, 
the course of life to include character and context of life. Two, the conduct of life with specific choices and behavior. Now let me share with the teenagers present today listening or here in this building. Teenagers, I'm going to be brutally honest. On the surface, sin can be really attractive. There, I said it, a pastor from a pulpit. Believe it or not, your parents were your age once upon a time too. I know you find that shocking. They understand and remember what sin looked like at your age. Let me also tell you that every sin leads to emptiness, frustration, and disappointment. As a pastor, I get to see life multiplied, and sadly, I also get to see how sin destroys lives. Do you desire to be different and stand for something important as a teenager? Let the Bible be your guide and not the world. For the guidance from the Bible will not change, but the instruction from the world will continue to change day by day. Three, the consequences of that conduct which lead to one's ultimate destiny. Turn your attention to the progression in verse 1 again, and notice we are instructed on what the blessed man does not do. Three times verse 1 reiterates that these people are happy who do not associate with the wicked. It brings up an interesting question. Does this mean then that we should not have contact with unbelievers? That we should isolate ourselves? The New Testament reports that Jesus ate with sinners and interacted with Gentiles. So the message is not to avoid contact with unbelievers, but not to choose their way of life. To avoid a lifestyle that centers on oneself instead of God. Let's turn our attention to verse 2 now and observe the key to the righteous way. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. C.S. Lewis found this word delight to be utterly bewildering and mysterious. As he wrote in Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis continued by saying, he can understand how one could delight in God's mercies, visitations, and attributes, but not how one could delight in God's law. You don't delight in law, not really. Rather, law is something you respect and obey. The psalmist would disagree with Lewis. Consider just a few passages. Psalm 19 states, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119 echoes, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalmist even declares, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Psalm 119 gives the impression that obedience to God's law was not a difficult duty, but more like a response to profound love. Jonathan Edwards has challenged me over the years with his words, consider his affection expressed for God's word. Sometimes only mentioning a single word will cause my heart to burn within me. Only seeing the name of Christ or some attribute of God will suddenly make my heart burn, and God suddenly appears glorious to me, making me have exalting thoughts of him. When I enjoy this sweetness, it seems to carry me above the thoughts of my own estate. It seems that at such times I am at such a loss that I cannot bear it, and I cannot bring myself to take my eye from this glorious present object, to turn it to myself or to my interest. Wow. 
May each of us desire God's Word like that. Now, I've also learned over time that desire will lead to action. Once upon a time when I was in the military as a young man, I actually had to stand in line to cash my check. There was no such thing as direct deposit. And I would be so excited to get that $200 from a hard two weeks of work. That's right. That's what I made back in the day. And it was impressive. Figure out that hourly rate. Sometimes we would be surprised that we would get a three-day weekend. And so I'd take four or five of those paychecks and I'd buy me one of them $800 or $1,000 tickets to go fly and see my girl. Now, you may think I'm crazy, but the reason that I went to go see my girl was because I was delighted with her and I loved her. So it caused me to take action. I spent every penny I had in that piggy bank to go see my woman. Now, for those of you that are a little bit younger, I'm going to show you an ancient device on the screen here. It's called a payphone. Sometimes I didn't have enough paychecks to get me home on a plane. So I'd do the next best thing. I'd take me a sock full of nickels and dimes and quarters. And I'd stand in line with a bunch of other dudes like me. And I'd wait to get my turn to call and hear her voice. Now, believe it or not, when you made that phone call, you didn't know if she was home. It wasn't like we could text in advance. But sometimes I would hear her voice and she would be the one that would answer. And it was wonderful. And because we're in church, I'll spare you all the details. <laughs> but without fail, my girl asked me to say the same thing every time we finished up that phone call. And I'd start getting uncomfortable because all the fellows are standing in line too, and they all start inching up closer. They know what's coming. And she's like, go ahead and say it. It was never loud enough for my girl. Her ears were fine. So eventually I'd be like, I love you. And then all the guys would be like, ha, ha, ha. I'm like, you're next. <laughs> now why would I stand in line for a couple of hours to have a phone call so I could hear my future wife's voice? It's because she brought me great delight. 36 years I've been chasing after her, and I will tell you something, this is kind of impromptu, but she heard the first message, she's down in Georgia watching our grandkids, and I'm going to show you something, or show you, I will tell you something. She liked the sermon, she said, good job. She goes, I hope you're still excited to hear my voice, Jaffer, I let you know I bought a purse on sale for $400. <laughs> she then, because she knew how to get palpitations, says, I haven't bought one, but remember, you have to be excited. <laughs> We're all family, right? I love you, baby. All right. One commentator said, verse 2 reminds us of God's word to Joshua as he was leading Israel into the promised land. The Lord said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. So when Psalm 1 says that those people are happy and content who meditate on God's Torah, it refers first of all to the book of the law, the Deuteronomic Code of Laws, then to the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and ultimately to all of the collecting teachings of God's Word, the Holy Bible. As we study the word meditate, 
we learn that it means to speak aloud. The visual from the children's video earlier of a cow chewing the cud is very accurate. As we read God's Word, we then meditate and chew on it throughout the day. It also means to speak God's Word out loud. So how cool is it that each of us can be a cow in a good way? Now it's fair to say some of you listening might be discouraged about delighting and meditating on God's Word. You might be thinking, I'd love to feel this way about God in the Bible, but I don't. What do I do? It's a great question. May I suggest that you confess your struggle with God because He already knows your heart. God is faithful and He will not turn His back on you. Years ago when I was able to lead the youth ministry here, we would take the teenagers to the Dominican Republic. And one trip we took 248 teenagers down there, and I will tell you, that's a season of prayer. (laughs) I'll also tell you, you cannot do a trip like that unless you have brave men and women to go with you. Inevitably, the pattern repeated itself to where it was predictable. We would worship in the morning. We would go out and serve. We would share our faith. And then we would come back and we would worship again. We were memorizing God's Word. We were learning how to share our faith and the hope we have in Christ. And the cycle would repeat. And the students, eventually, they would be distraught at night because they witnessed such poverty that they've never seen before. They're so insulated here in Nova. And for some of them, this is the first time to travel abroad and actually see what real poverty looks like. But while they're there, they're glowing. And they would always say the same thing. I feel so close to God. I feel like this is what I was made to do. And we would encourage them and say, you're right, you are. Then we would get back. And after a couple months, you would say the same teenagers moping around. And you would ask them, what's wrong? And they would say, I don't feel close to God. And then you would ask those good diagnostic questions. And you'd say, well, are you reading your Bible? Like, well, I'm too busy. Are you praying? I'm too busy for that too. Are you sharing your faith? Well, no, that's kind of scary here. How about serving? Are you serving in your church? No. Do you see why you don't feel close to God? It's not complicated on what we're supposed to do, but we're still called to do it. Sometimes the basics are important, aren't they? You've heard me say that before. A prayer from A.W. Tozer comes to mind as well. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirstier. Still, give me grace to rise up and follow thee. What a prayer. And I imagine some of you are here today, and you feel just like that. It is good to actually understand that you're lacking that desire and ask God to give it to you. Let me share one more observation from God's Word on the topic of desiring and meditating on His Word. In Deuteronomy 17, we learn what God desires from the king. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. 
So a man becomes king. What's next? Does he appoint various new leaders? Does he create new taxes? Does he tour his vast holdings around the land? No. What is he to do? The first thing he's to do is copy out God's word. If just those three verses would have been observed and lived out, consider how the rest of Old Testament history would have turned out. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This tree being planted means in Hebrew, transplanted. God is the master gardener here. God is the one that places them by the streams of the water. And it also means that spiritual happiness is God-given and not something you and I can do on our own. The streams of water are God's teaching, and they remind me of Jesus when he met a Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus asked her for a drink. Take a look at John 4. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I love the reminder and visual of bearing fruit in its season. This teaching helps me to remain patient during times when fruit is not falling off my own branches. The tree and its deep roots also help it remain during difficult times. Here is a fact of life that we don't need a lot of teaching on. All of us will face storms in life. It's not a matter of if you will, but when you will go through a storm. How comforting for those in Christ to know that he is with them such, in such during times. My wife and I often share with each other how lost we would be within the trials of life if we didn't have God as our foundation. There is such a sense of stability and serenity knowing that God is in control. Some time ago, I picked up a little book called Green Leaf and Drought. Let me to read a portion of it for you. It's about a couple who had gone to China as missionaries, and they described their life thereafter the communists had taken over in China at the end of the Second World War. Their name was Matthews, and they were the last missionaries of the China Inland Mission to escape from that country. They were under communism for two years, during which time they lived with their young daughter in a small room. Their only furniture was a stool. They could not contact their Christian friends for fear of getting them in trouble. Except for the smallest trickle, their funds were cut off by the government. He came from a small stove, which they lit once a day to boil rice for dinner. The only fuel they had was dried animal refuse that Art Matthews collected from the streets. These were indeed dry times. But afterwards, when they wrote their testimony to God's grace, they called the book Green Leaf and Drought based off of Psalm 1, verse 3. You see, the Matthews realized that those who delight in the Word of God do not wither, but instead produce fruit. Now, this is the big idea of our text today. If you're to walk away with one thing, this is it. That the man or woman of God would walk in the way of righteousness by delighting in the teaching of the Lord. It is so important that we cultivate 
this desire for the Word of God. Now let's look at one of the most abused portions of Scripture from the end of the verse. In all that he does, he prospers. Remember, we're still talking about a tree and its purpose. This sounds like health and wealth gospel. One hears so often on TV, just obey the Lord, send me some cash, and all your troubles will go away. You'll be healthy and wealthy and wise. Now, I shared with the earlier congregation that there is a Hebrew word for this. It's called baloney. <laughs> Does God promise His people good health and great wealth? Let me share a more sobering stat. Do you realize one out of one die? It's sobering, isn't it? We need to pay attention to false teaching. This interpretation misses the whole point of Psalm 1, as well as the following Psalms. Several Psalms struggle with the fact that it is the wicked that seem to prosper. The wicked are often the ones who have health and wealth, while God's people experience trouble and pain. Take, for example, Psalm 73, where the psalmist confesses, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not plagued like other people. Also, today, we know of wicked people who are filthy rich, and we know Christians who are dirt poor. We also know of wicked people who are in excellent health, and Christians who suffer with various diseases. Now, I learned a great deal from Dr. Adrian Rogers when I was younger. I like how he defines prosperity, and I want you to listen to it. Prosperity is the continual achieving of the will of God for one's life. Hear it again. Prosperity is the continual achieving of the will of God for one's life. You can do no wrong by being in the will of God. Amen. The health and wealth gospel not only misses the point of this psalm, but it also contradicts our experiences of life on earth. Those who interpret the final line in verse 3 as a promise of health and wealth separate this line from the rest of verse 3. Remember, verse 3 is a simile. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in a season. And their leaves do not wither, and all that they do, the trees, they prosper. This last line is still talking about these trees. It says, in all they do, they prosper. What do trees do? They bear fruit. Do you know what fruit is for? Skipping all the nutritional debates out there, fruit is for the benefit of others and not the tree. If you're following along with our Bible reading plan, You'll remember we recently read in Jeremiah 17. Take a look at verse 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Ladies, allow me to speak to the men for a moment. Men, what would it look like if you became like the man mentioned in this text. Regardless if you're single or married, to have your life so deeply rooted in the Word of God that you would not fear to be a man who is not anxious and continues to bear fruit. For those of you who are married, what would it look like to walk with the Lord daily so that your, your bride knows provision and protection and you create an environment where she can thrive? For those of you who have children, what would it look like to be a father who reflects our Heavenly Father? For my fellow grandfathers and great-grandfathers, what would it look like 
to be a giant oak that provides shelter and shade from the storms of life for your family while God still gives you breath. Men, you are called to be such a man. And what a privilege to be a tree for all those that the Lord places in your care. Remember, we are called to bear fruit for others, not ourselves. Jesus modeled this for us, and as followers of Christ, we are to do the same. Second observation, the way of the unrighteous, verses 4 and 5. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now instead of a picture of a stable tree for the righteous, the wicked are portrayed as chaff. Now I've had the blessing of traveling much of God's creation, and on my travels I've seen how chaff is separated from wheat. Many places still use animals that go around and around on the threshing floor to separate the husk or the chaff that's present. Then people take a winnowing fork or a basket and they throw the grain up in the air over and over. The wind blows the chaff away and all that is left is the useful grain. The Bible has some sobering words for where the chaff will go. Luke 3, 17 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Sometimes I like to make charts to help me better understand contrast in topics. Consider the difference between a tree and chaff. A tree is stable. Chaff is windblown. A tree is well watered. Chaff, dry as dust. A tree is fruit bearing. And a chaff is worthless. A tree is alive. And chaff is dead. The Bible makes it clear that chaff is worthless and directionless. A simple breeze can blow it away. The way of the wicked remains confused, for they look to the world for direction. The way of the righteous remains stable, for they look to the word for direction. Where do you look for your direction today? My hope is that it is in the Word of God. Verse 5, a sobering reminder that no one will stand before the Lord who is not found in Christ. No matter the earthly accomplishments, they will be like chaff where the wicked stand before the Lord. And that leads us to our final observation. The final results of both ways lived. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked Will perish. In verse 6, we observe two final ends. Strictly speaking, it's not a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous. The result of the wicked should cause men and women of God to be on their knees in prayer. We should care for those who do not know Christ. Our text makes it crystal clear that not only do the wicked perish, but their way will perish as well. Everything that seems so important to them will disappear. In contrast, we see that the Lord knows the righteous and the fruit that they bear will be rewarded one day. Now, I know we've covered a lot of information. Two ways lives to sound straightforward, and yet, if we're to be brutally honest, you and I know it's more of a sliding scale that we live on. We only need to look at King David as an example. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And we love that as fellows, don't we? Like David, man after God's own heart. He showed great courage and he was a loyal friend. But then when you turn a few more pages, he also manages to commit adultery and murder. 
No telling what he would have turned out like if he wasn't a man after God's own heart. There are numerous other examples we could look at, but let me challenge you to do your own survey of the Bible and look at the choices men and women make throughout Scripture. Over and over you will see the results of the wise and the wicked and the mercy and the grace of the Lord shown. This contrast between two ways is shared with great visuals by the Lord Jesus with His Sermon on the Mount, which could be a whole other sermon, and it really ties nicely with Psalm 1. He only offers two ways to live, and I'm just going to share a couple of them. He closes his sermon, and I paraphrase, some people will build on the sand, and when the storm comes, they're washed away. Others will build on the rock, and when the storm comes, they will remain. There is no in-between foundation to choose from. You are either building your house and your life on the sand, or you're building it upon the Word of God. Jesus tells us about two gates, a narrow gate that leads to life, and a broad gate that leads to destruction. There's no in-between size gates. Two ways to live, my friends. Now at the start, I promised you three questions to close to help you apply God's Word today. So that's where we're at. So here we go. First question, does it build you up spiritually? Consider 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. As you approach any activity, practice asking this question. To phrase it differently, will doing this promote growth in my Christian character? Or will it discourage Christian growth? The second question, does it bring me under its power? 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, I was in the business of doing hostage rescue, and I will tell you, when someone is freed from being a prisoner, they are ecstatic. They are joyful. They are so relieved. Nobody wants to be a slave. Nobody wants to be a prisoner. And yet today, many men and women, boys and girls in the church, are slaves to sin. They're being dominated by something. And the only way you can get out of that is to beg the Lord to save you. You cannot do it on your own. And brothers and sisters, beware of anything that pulls you away from the love of Christ. Don't let it bring you under its power. This is another example why it's so important to be involved in biblical community, to live out the one another's in Scripture. And one of the best ways I know to do this is by joining a church group. I meet men and women often who are frustrated because they don't feel close to people in the church. And you know what question I'm going to ask them? Are you in a church group? Because when you're in a church group, you can take this big congregation and you can make it much smaller. It's so important. And I realize summer is a challenging time to connect with anybody. But this fall, make a note on your phones or wherever you keep your notes and challenge yourself to get involved in biblical community. Join a church group. When you're in biblical community, you will learn you are not alone in daily struggles. The devil would love nothing more than to keep you isolated, feeling like you are the only one who's going through this problem. But one of the beautiful things I learned in youth ministry is when I could sit parents down and listen to them and let them know you're not the only parent who's had a teenager lose your mind. They find great comfort in that. And it's the same for you ladies when you talk with other ladies. You mean your husband can drive you nuts? And the same for the fellows when we all admit we love our wives so much. Like, I love my wife too. 
You get where I'm going. It is good to be in biblical community. And when you have a brother or sister to fight with you, you will come to realize the freedom in sharing struggles. And you will also learn you are not in the fight alone. Last question. Do you have an uneasy conscience about it? The end of Romans 14, 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There will be times when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says no to a certain activity. It reminds me of when our kids would petition to do something because everyone else was doing it. My wife and I would lovingly tell them, you are not everyone else, you are our child, and we say no. Pleasant boundaries are needed for every child of God. In 2018, along with David and many other men and women in this church, we served in Ethiopia. It was a wonderful time. And while I was there, I got to teach the army officers in Ethiopia. And I shared a story with them to challenge them as men of God. And I want to share the same story with each one of you today as I close. So if I take you back to Alaska, one of the other things I taught was cliff work. And so that day we had our ropes out and I was going to teach them how to do a retrievable rappel. I'll give you the speed version of the class. So retrievable rappel is where you teach how to take the ropes and use an anchor and set it up in such a way where you can take all your guys down the cliff and into the ocean or wherever you want to go and then you can take the last guy and he can take all the ropes with him and you leave nothing behind. It's pretty cool. The specifics are you tie the ropes together in a double fisherman, then you hook them together with figure eights, got a locking carabiner, both guys go down at the same time. And I've learned this when you rappel off a mountain with a buddy, it doesn't pay to get ahead of them when you're kicking off hundreds of pounds of rock. Sometimes it's good to stay with your buddy, right? Because it doesn't pay to win and get down on the beach first because you might get thousands of pounds of payload on top of your skull, and that would be bad. But anyway, I digress. And so... I teach this system, my buddy and I, we set it up, we demonstrate it for the 16 guys in the SIL platoon that I'm teaching. Now they're a little hostile. And again, remember, teaching SILs is like raising teenagers. They know everything. And so I'm getting a lot of pushback. These guys think they've got it under control and they have another way. And I say, you know what? I love that you have another way to do it, but I want you to demonstrate this way first. And if you can show me you safely know how to do it, then I'll look at your way. And if it's good, then you can drive on with that. Fair enough? And there's a lot of grumbling and a lot of adjectives that you wouldn't want to hear. And they proceeded. Now their chief, as he was setting it up, he was pretty hot-headed that day. And he's setting up and he's mumbling. And eventually he gets it to where he's happy and he starts hooking his two guys up. And then those two guys are hooked up and they're walking back to the cliff. And I stop them, which didn't go over uh, very well at all. And I said, are you telling me that these two guys are ready to go off the cliff? And he shouted at me. He's like, I'm telling you they're ready to go. I said, fair enough. You two guys, unclip from the ropes and come here. And then they looked at me and they said, our chief said we're good to go. Noted. Unclip from the ropes and come here. Reluctantly, they unclip from the ropes and they walked towards me. As soon as they were clear from the ropes, we use kit bags, these big giant green bags to stuff all our gear in. I picked up the bags that were on top of the ropes and the whole rope system went off the side of the mountain. In his anger and in his pride, he forgot to take the rope around the tree. His guys would have died in about three more seconds if they would have stepped off that cliff. The Bible says in Proverbs 14 that there is a way to a man that seems right, but the end leads to death. 
Here's something else that maybe you're not aware of. Every one of you are in that story. For my brothers and sisters today, you know men and women, boys and girls, who are about to head off a cliff into eternity, and they're not ready. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to step towards them and let them know the gospel? Are you going to care enough to risk that ridicule and shame to let them know how much you care and that there is hope in Christ? Or are you going to say, you know what? God bless you. Have a good day and let them go off that cliff. That's not loving. That's not loving God and that certainly isn't loving others. But there's another group here today. You may, hear, you may be here today exploring Christianity. You still got questions. We all got questions. But you don't realize that there's a God that loves you. Maybe you were brought here today by a friend, someone who actually took that risk to be ridiculed and shamed. And they asked you to come to church. Or maybe they asked you to listen online. I've got the best news in the world for each and every one of you that are exploring Christianity today. The Bible says that God created you to be with him. Isn't that amazing? The creator of the universe knows you, and he made you. The Bible also tells us that our sin separates us from a holy God. Every one of us have sinned, and we're separated from God. To make matters worse, those sins cannot be removed by good deeds. And there are a lot of us that think we are earning our way to heaven today, and we are wrong. The Bible does not say you can earn your way to heaven. But God knew that, and that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place and to die in mine. And the best news of all is that God raised him from the dead three days later. And the part that I will never tire, I will shout it from the rooftops as long as the Lord gives me breath. Everyone, everyone, everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done can have eternal life, and that eternal life can begin today. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why I'm here and every day the Lord will give me, I am going to share the gospel and the hope I have in Christ. The Bible is filled with choices. John 3.16 is a familiar verse. Sometimes we'll miss the fact that there's a choice in that verse, though. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My hope today is that every one of you will walk out of here with the assurance that you know you're a child of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is good, and we are thankful to be in your house. Father, I pray now for my brothers and sisters, as we've gone through this text, that they would desire your word all the more, and that they would cling to it, and that they would chew on it all day long and into the evening, and that it would direct their paths to the way of righteousness. And Father, I also pray that your word would prompt them into action. Every man and woman knows somebody who's lost, who's not ready to go off that cliff. May you cause them to take action. May they desire to see salvation take place in those they care, in those that you've placed them around. And Father, for those who are here exploring Christianity, those who are listening and still have questions, I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that you would bring them home. Bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful uh, that you've given us another day to live. May we not waste it as your children. And I do pray for the souls that don't know you today, that today they'd come home. Oh, Father, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church said...
Amen, church.